morning. I'm Barry White. <clears throat> That's not actually true, yeah, if anyone was confused by that. And uh, my name's Nelson. Well, just in case, there's other Barry Whites in the world, right? So that's all I'm saying. Um, I, I do have a little bit of a voice issue this morning, and I just have to say it pained me not to get to sing the songs that you are all singing this morning because of that, just trying to save every ounce of voice I had left for, for this moment. Um, but what a joy to listen to you all and to just be uh, in this place and uh, worshiping along with you in that way. So thanks to Neil Young and the band for leading us this morning. You all know who I'm talking about. Okay, enough musical references that are, seem to be falling on mostly deaf ears. Um, it, it is good to be with you. Uh, we are continuing this morning in our uh, series on the Apostles' Creed. We're looking at this ancient summary of what is basic, hence the title, uh, or central to our faith, what, what really lies at the core of it. And so we're examining the creed line by line, really taking our time to get through this. Why again? To hear it in a fresh way together, to take it apart slowly, and hopefully in some ways put it back together, to connect it with the scriptural story from which it emerged, to understand what it means, not to just believe it in a correct thoughts about God kind of way, but actually to believe into it, to, to trust it, to give my heart level allegiance to it and to live it. So if you're brand new here this morning, first welcome, uh, add my welcome, but also we've been in this series since February, so there's more background than just these couple sentences that I've offered that live on our, our website in the podcast. So if you have interest in kind of catching up with us, certainly encourage you to check those out at some point. But that's the main focus that we're taking as we approach the Apostles' Creed, line by line. How do we believe into this? How do we live into it? How do we give ourselves to it? And so this morning we come to a phrase in the Creed that I, I found a lot more palatable as a child. Um, what's the phrase? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, see, I told you, I'm Father. So that, that's going to happen a few times. And I'm not sure he ascended into heaven. I don't know why I get to preach on all the weirdest parts of the creed. But that's not, a, not actually true either. It's all pretty weird. Um, I didn't grow up in a church tradition that, that spoke or recited the Apostles' Creed every week. But I was raised in the church. And I knew this ascension bit was in the Bible. And that after Jesus was raised from the dead, there was a period of time, it was about 40 days, uh, that he made some appearances during that time, and then he was lifted off into heaven. And as a child, I was totally fine with this. It made perfect sense to my six-year-old imagination that heaven and earth were both physical locations, but that we only had GPS coordinates for earth. Um, as a child, I, I was much more accepting of mystery, of the fact that I can't know everything about everything. As a child, I could easily buy that the earth was earth. It was, it was here, it was where we live, it's solid, it's tangible, it's seeable, and that one could travel from one part to another through various means. Heaven, in contrast, was not here. It was somewhere else, but no one knows exactly where. And most of my thoughts about heaven had to do with it being a good place, right? The best place. It's definitely where you want to go when you die. So in 1977, when a guest speaker came to 100 Mile House to the little church where my dad was an intern, 
And he preached about the other place and how there was a way I could be sure that I wouldn't end up there. My six-year-old imagination was engaged enough to pray a prayer that would guarantee me access to the good place. Wherever it was, whatever it was like, most of us, I'm guessing, grew up with a strong sense that heaven was located in one particular direction, which was where? Up. Where? Where does this understanding come from? Well, Acts chapter 1 is certainly one place. Our text this morning, if you have a chair Bible, uh, page number is indicated there. This is also in the handout this morning. I just want to offer our text for today. Then they, that is the disciples who were close to Jesus, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, I mean, Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, kind of makes it sound like Jesus was magically lifted up into the sky. Are we meant to just take this at face value? This part of the creed on the surface is about as believable as a virgin birth. And part of me feels like the ascension of Christ would be ridiculed a little more vigorously from those outside the church, if the church made a bigger deal out of it than we tend to. Which makes me wonder if there was maybe a secret meeting at some point after the virgin birth started to kind of surface as a thing, and naysayers began to make their case. I wonder if there was a meeting where they said, guys, I think, I think we might need to downplay the ascension thing a little. Oh, what? oh it's already in the creed. Okay, well, um, well, let's at least not have ascension day fall on a Sunday. You guys good with a Thursday? Thursday? Okay, not a Sunday. Great. It's actually true. The church calendar, it falls on a Thursday. Ascension Day is a Thursday, not a Sunday. So you test the theory. I don't know. So what do we make, though, of this sudden disappearing act? What do we do with this claim that Jesus knew how to apparate long before Harry Potter did? Where did he go? Why did he ditch us? What is heaven? Is it the sky? Is it outer space? Is this part of the creed saying Jesus was the first astronaut? I wonder if it might be inviting us into something else, into something more. And I wonder if we might be able to uncover a bit of that more by being less concerned about the mechanics and more concerned in the significance of the ascension. What if we were less concerned about the how of the ascension and more curious about who it was that ascended, and in what form. Curious about the position he now inhabits, his primary role there, and what that means for us. Well, by grace, I I hope we'll uncover some good and hopeful news this morning, and let's pray together and ask for God's help as we do so.
risen and ascended one. Uh, we come humbly, we come open this morning to open our ears even further, open our hearts to what this text has to illuminate, what the significance of the ascension might be for us here and now in this place. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you'd like, I invite you to stand, if you're able, and uh, let's recite the creed as a whole together. And then we'll come back and focus on the phrase that we're looking at today. So, together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can have a seat. So we're going to ask three questions uh, this morning of this phrase in the creed. We're going to ask what happened. We're going to ask why does it matter and how might we live into it. So what happened, why does it matter, and how might we live into it. So what, we might say what just happened. <laughs> what happened at the ascension? What was that all about? Uh, verse 9 again. After he said these things about the Spirit and being witnesses, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So I mentioned that I think we're, being, we're invited not to be overly concerned with the how, but we should probably be a little concerned with the how. I don't know. Just, just to tease our curiosity out. Did the ascension literally happen? Was this an actual historical event, as Luke seems to imply? And as we hold these questions today in 2019 in Vancouver, Let's recognize that people have been doing so for a long time. In particular, challenging the historicity of Christ's ascension is nothing new. So, for example, teachers of dualistic thought in the second century weren't into the ascension either. I had some questions. Marcion, if you were here for the virgin birth sermon, you remember this guy. This is the guy who thought procreation was gross and that the human body was basically a dung pile. He creatively edited his own version of Luke's gospel and left out both the birth narrative and the ascension. And so that's because Marcion, as you might remember, imagined a spiritual disembodied savior and needed to force the scriptures to conform to that vision. Others made the claim that Christ ascended spiritually and actually left his physical body behind, which if you ask me would have been even more weird for those who saw it happen. They're like, there goes Jesus' spirit. This is sad, but also kind of cool. Huh. Oh, what's this? <laughs> so in such doctrines, the body is believed to be evil, and the material word, world sorry, is consigned to ruin. So salvation is about escaping the misery of this world. Jesus himself, so it was said by these folks, wanted nothing to do with physical life in this world. He came to bring enlightenment, to liberate the human spirit from its bondage to the world of icky creation. To which the early Christians said an emphatic no. 
Christianity, they asserted, is not a disembodied faith. Every, every event connected to Christ was physical. He became incarnate in a body. He experienced suffering in his body. He died in a body. He was resurrected from the dead in a body. And he ascended to heaven in a body. To heaven. It's a good time for a little theological sidebar to reflect a little bit on what we mean by heaven. So, um, to permit me, not take too long with this, but scripture, I suggest, speaks of heaven in three ways. First, when it speaks of heaven, it speaks of the life of God. Simply that, the life of God. Heaven is the life of God. No beginning, no end, totally self-sustaining, utterly complete. And so, in this sense, God always dwelled in heaven, even if there was no earth or when there was no earth. And so when Jesus says outrageous things like the kingdom of heaven is within you, we begin to realize that the Philadelphia cream cheese picture of heaven that many of us can't unsee needs some serious nuancing. If heaven is the very life of God, then it is not just far away. Heaven is here. It's at hand. It's as close as our chest. Second way that heaven is referred to in Scripture is the state of humankind or angels in sharing the life of God. So sharing the life of God now as a foretaste or later in fullness, both and. So again, when Jesus says outrageous things, like the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a farmer planted in his field, and though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. When he says that, no one who heard these words when Jesus first spoke them thought to themselves, wow, guys, the kingdom of heaven sounds amazing. Won't it be great to see that mustard tree thing happen someday when we're all dead? A heaven that was only future and post-death and far away was not what they were anticipating. They held on to some future anticipation, certainly. We see that even in our text in Acts, and we'll come back to that in a few moments. But their minds were blown, and they kept following Jesus around to hear what he would say next because they wondered what it meant for their lives now. Their minds were blown because, as Anne Lamott put it, sometimes heaven is just a new pair of glasses. What if the main motive for Jesus' teaching about heaven was to help us truly see the here and now? Yes, Scripture teaches that our reward, our treasure, our inheritance are all in heaven. That heaven is a shorthand for our ultimate hope. But that is a hope we are also invited to live into now. In fact, that's the whole point. One more sense in which heaven is understood in Scripture, simply the sky, which is up. It's above us, and it seems infinite and maybe more like never-endingness than anything we else we can uh, conceive of. So the sky in Scripture functions as a symbol in space and time of the forever life of God. So again, not too much more time here, but I thought it worth mentioning, given where we are in the creed, and also because when it comes to heaven, I have a suspicion that many of us have been handed a severely truncated understanding, one that defaults to this mentality that heaven is far away and later. And I want to suggest that's a problem, and we need to alter our view. 
Dallas Willard said it more succinctly than I could. Here's what he said. The damage done to our practical faith in Christ and in his government at hand by confusing heaven with a place in distant or outer space or even beyond space is incalculable. Of course God is there too. But instead of heaven and God also always being present with us as Jesus shows them to be, we invariably take them to be located far away and most likely at a much later time, not here, not now, and we should then be surprised to feel ourselves alone. So coming back to the question of what happened, was the ascension literal? Did Jesus become the first astronaut? No, but the disciples present were given a physical, seeable sign. C.S. Lewis suggests something like this that they saw first a short vertical movement. Vertical movement was the word I was saying there. And then a vague luminosity. And that's what cloud presumably means. And then nothing. Short vertical movement, some vague luminosity, and then nothing. To put it another way, Jesus' final withdrawal from human sight appeared to the disciples as going up to heaven in the third sense we described earlier, into the sky. So I believe we're being invited to accept this. As historical fact. Think about it. Withdrawal had to happen somehow. So the options are going up, going down, going sideways, failing to appear, or suddenly vanishing. And, and then when we consider what, that this is the event meant, um, to, that what this event meant to the biblical writers theologically, this idea of going up and ascending makes the most sense. So is the ascension literal or physical, historical? Yeah, I think so but it was also metaphorical. He ascended to heaven is a word picture meant to convey that Jesus is being exalted, going up to a condition of supreme dignity and power. So up also is a metaphor, like moving from grade four to grade five, from artisan kids into junior youth. Up carries more of a sense of beyond. Jesus isn't flying out through the atmosphere and into the solar system and into the Milky Way somewhere. And first century Jews didn't think so either. They used metaphors without embarrassment to picture a mystery. So again, the Hebrew view of the universe was that earth and heaven are not entirely separable. They're connected dimensions. They're overlapping, but separated by a veil. And in our case, the veil here is symbolized by a cloud. Verse 9 again says, A cloud hid him from their sight. Cloud is a huge metaphor in the whole of Scripture. Think of the many places where a cloud shows up. The transfiguration, where Jesus is glorified in a cloud. The wilderness of Exodus and the cloud of God's presence that moved with his people, that led Israel through the desert. The Holy of Holies, where a cloud covered the Ark of the Covenant. So this cloud shows up at various points in the big story to point toward the division between heaven and earth, the division that's shrouded in mystery. It's unclear. It's cloudy. So what we have in the ascension is Jesus moving from one dimension to the other through the same cloud of unknowing that we've seen throughout Scripture. Where he goes is not so much up as it is beyond. And that's challenging for us because we aren't given a whole lot of detail about the beyond. Okay, so... We've made some attempt here to articulate what happened at Jesus' ascension. Let's move on to the more important question of why. What happened? Why does it matter? Why does it matter 
that Jesus ascended. What do we celebrate in it? So now Jesus is gone into heaven, into the life of God, somewhere beyond. It sounds like a good thing for him. Um, Is it also good for us? It's a question I I have to confess I haven't spent much time reflecting on. Has anyone, by the way, heard a sermon on the ascension before? It's not something we talk about. Does anyone remember a sermon? doesn't matter if it was good or bad or what you thought of it. Anyone remember a sermon on the ascension? Cool. Ian Hall. Nice. The only one in the hall who has heard a sermon. Yeah. Okay. One or two others. Great. So no pressure here. It's the first one you've all heard on the ascension. Okay. So the question we were asking is, is it good for us also? Haven't wrestled with this very much. So even if you're here this morning and you're not sure about any of this, it's hard to miss how obsessed Christians are with what Jesus has done for us, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, not to mention what he will do return in glory. So there are good reasons, of course, for spending time and energy on those parts of our story, but why is it, I wonder, that we spend so much less time considering what Jesus is doing now in his ascended position at the Father's right hand? I don't have a good answer, but I am interested in changing the script. That is to why we haven't spent time on it. I have an answer about why it's important, but I'm interested in changing the script and having us spend more time on it. And this part of the creed draws us there. It helps us do just that. So, um, yeah, how, is it, how does it matter to us? Well, I'm going to do one of those things as preachers that we try not to do very often, but sometimes you just can't help it. It's called reading a slide or a, a quote that's longer than just one slide. It takes up a couple. But this is just too good, and I need to share it. It's from Luke Timothy Johnson. So I invite us to hear this together. The creed's statements about the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus express the truth about Jesus now. They are the premise for the church's worship and practice. If these statements are false, everything that the church does in the name of Jesus is an empty shell. For Jesus can refer only to a dead man of the distant past, and not a powerful Lord of the present, whose presence defines our present. When the church gathers in the name of Jesus, it gathers in the name of nothing if Jesus is not Lord. When the church prays and heals and prophesies in the name of Jesus, it engages in self-deception and delusion if Jesus does not now act in the world with the very power of the creator. But if the creed speaks the truth, then the question we put to Jesus is not nearly so important as the question Jesus puts to us, if the creed speaks the truth, that Jesus now lives at the right hand of the Father, then learning Jesus is not a matter of scholarly enterprise, said the scholar, and casual reading about a teacher of the past, but a matter of obedience to the one who presses upon us at every moment, encounters us in the sacraments and saints and strangers and calls us to account. Isn't that rich? On the heels of this reality, I hope you and I never read he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father the same way again. If this part of the creed speaks truth, then it's one of the best ways to remember that this part of the creed does not primarily highlight Jesus' absence, 
celebrates his presence, but in a different way. So let's come back to Acts 1. In verse 6, the disciples ask, they gathered around him and they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So the text reveals that they were still trying to put this all together. Is this the time? Still hoping that he was going to somehow set up Israel as the superpower over the Holy Land. They're still confused. They think the kingdom of God is something that's going to show up on a physical map with their nation's name on it. So remember, these people were all brought up in the deep dreams of the prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Joel, all of whom envisioned the same future, that when the kingdom comes, God would finally and completely reign over all. So given all this, it makes sense that they would think of God's rule in nationalistic terms. So that's why they ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I don't think it's too much to assume that while they said this, they were going, please say yes, please. But how does Jesus respond? He says, well, probably disappointingly to them, at least initially. He said, guys, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about when. It's about how. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Do not worry about the when. This is why every attempt to predict to the end of the world is royally missing the point of what Jesus was on about. Times and dates are not for you to know. Do not worry about the when. Could he be any clearer on this? Now I'm Chandler Bing. Sorry. Don't worry about the when, says Jesus. When is the Father's wheelhouse? The real question is how. And this had to give them pause. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This surprised them, surely. But I also wonder if it jogged their memory, which surprises often do. Maybe it caused them to remember the words of Joel, for example, who said, Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So the new reality that the prophets announced and that Jesus echoed wasn't just a political reality. It was a spiritual reality, and God would pour out his spirit on everyone. So God's reality, God's kingdom becomes visible, becomes tangible as the spirit of Jesus comes to dwell in the life of God's people. So how does the kingdom advance? How does it take up more ground? Not by soldiers and armies, not by political power, not by declaring war. It spreads by bearing faithful witness. And it's an international movement starting in Jerusalem and Judea, then Samaria, and to every part of the world, which is pretty much the way the book of Acts unfolds. That's the playbook for how the good news will travel. So Jesus reminds them of the spiritual reality of the kingdom, reminds them of their part in it, that they won't be alone, and without much warning, he's gone. He ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Another brief sidebar. Some of us might wonder what's so special about the right hand of the Father. Is this 
an anti-left-handedness bias. It's nothing to do with that. It's simply about the sharing of power. It's a symbolic way of saying that Jesus isn't some deputy officer. He's not some second in command, but that together with the Father and the Spirit fully occupies the throne of the universe. So why does the ascension matter? Because through it, remember, we remember that Jesus, the ascended one, is still alive. That he's still fully incarnated. That he's still in bodily form, reigning as part of the community of the triune God in heaven. A place that somehow lies beyond, but influences everything that happens here and now. N.T. Wright says heaven is kind of like the control room for earth. The ascension matters to us because the ascended one is now our fully sympathetic representative in that control room. Someone who is fully human, like us, now sits at the right hand of the Father, mediating, interceding, intervening on our behalf. And Jesus' promise as he left was that in his absence he would send the gift of the Holy Spirit to continue his work on earth. He calls it power. You will receive power. You, me, empowered with the very life of God. I love how Barbara Brown Taylor describes the picture Jesus gives us of a loving God and a world bathed in God's presence. Here's what she writes. As God is to Christ, so shall the church be to the world. The means of filling the whole cosmos with the glory of God. Imagine a four-tiered fountain, if you will, in which God's glory spills over into Christ, and Christ's glory pours into the church, and the church's glory drenches the whole universe. This is what Paul is on about when he prays for the early church in the city of Ephesus. Verse 18 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like the four-tiered fountain is highly aspirational. The church pouring the glory of God, of Christ, in Christ into the world? Are you kidding me? I've seen the church pour stuff into the world, all right. I'm not sure how glorious it is. And at the same time, I'm filled with some hope because there are examples of the beauty of Jesus being poured out. Here, even here. Some of you no doubt heard of the tragic passing of Rachel Held Evans yesterday morning. Um, It's hit some of us pretty hard. Um, She's a writer, if you don't know her, a writer and teacher who influenced many of us, many others, and whether you're one of them or not or have read anything by her or not, I wanted to just share a few comments from people who are impacted by her good work. This is an example of the four-tiered fountain in action. 
One person said, Rachel reminded me that Jesus was so beautiful and holy and loving despite what I was seeing in some churches. She showed me that it was okay to be angry at the injustice but live in hope. Rachel rescued my faith in a time when I was deeply cynical. Her writing made me laugh, made me teary-eyed, but most importantly, she made me remember the best of what faith gave me. Rachel tried to keep faith with those who disagreed with her and tried to be humanely evangelical. Rachel somehow managed to take the pain and suffering the church handed her and still remain joyful, hopeful, and in the body. So many leave jaded, but she remained in a hope for something better in American Christianity. So many stories, so many lives. Here's how one person summed up his tribute. Rachel Held Evans rekindled faith and hope in thousands, stood with those who have lost faith and hope, listened to their pain, held their hands, and guarded their hearts. We honor her ongoing life best by staying in the hard conversations, by loving our enemies, by speaking up for the oppressed, by loving Jesus in the wounded, the rejected, the sinners, the holy ones that Jesus loves, and by searching for Sunday in this broken, beautiful world, trusting in the reality of the Lord's table. Rachel's life to the degree that it reflected the life of Jesus and wherever else we see it happening is what we celebrate in the ascension. So there are two sides to it. On one hand, we do experience a sense of absence. Jesus is no longer with us in bodily form. And this causes tension. We can't, we can't see him as a distinct person walking around. So the story of the ascension is at one level a story of loss. It's a story of absence. But on the other, we experience a new presence. Jesus is with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Only now, and this is huge, and this is why the ascension matters so much, his presence has no limits. Before the ascension, the presence of Christ was limited to a specific time and place. You had to get into a circle. You had to at least get close enough to touch the hem of his robe. But now his spirit has been unleashed into the world, and it's on the move. It's extending through Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Vancouver and the ends of the earth. Another writer said, the ascension of Christ does not lead us to the absence of Christ, but to his cosmic presence everywhere. This is why the risen Christ says, behold, I am with you always even to the very end of the age. In the ascension, Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. There is now no place where Christ is not, and there's no domain over which Jesus is not Lord. Our God is God in all, and over all he reigns, is what we sang earlier. Our God is God in all. So how might we live into this reality? How might we believe this part of the creed? What do we do about this? How might we actively place our trust in the lordship of the ascended one, the one who presses upon us at every moment? There's a few invitations I want to offer.
First, to dwell in the story. Dwell in the story. To live in the scriptures that point toward the reality of God's kingdom on earth. There are so many sources out there that claim to have the finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world. And we need to know those things too. But the picture won't be complete unless we keep returning to the written word, which is living and active and serves to continually open up the mystery of Jesus on the throne. Let's dwell in the story. Let's live in community. I invite us again, get connected with other people who are also seeking to live in light of the good news and practice the way of Jesus. Join a group, join a team, become a partner. We're not meant to do this alone. Let's dwell on the story. Let's live in community. Let's love our neighbor. Let's love our neighbor. We cooperate with Jesus' reign by treating others as though it's true. We refuse to gossip. We refuse to accuse. We refuse to speak ill of anyone for whom Jesus died. There are a lot of things that prevent the gospel from sounding and feeling like truly good news. Sexual scandal, financial scandal, certainly, but also gossip and accusation. How might we be different for the sake of Christ? Share your money. Scripture talks about the pursuit of material wealth as worshiping a false god called mammon. And mammon wants us to hoard our money. Mammon wants us to think money is ours, and it's not. It belongs to God. We remind ourselves of this every single week. Everything we have is a gift from you. So giving a portion, giving a tithe, breaks the spell that mammon would want to knit into our souls. And that's why giving during the offering in our gathering is actually a very powerful moment. It's when we give thanks. Yes, we, we offer gratitude for all God's given to us. But it's also the moment when we declare in a tangible way that Jesus is Lord and money isn't. I just heard, I love this, I just heard one of my mentors share this idea, and I think it's great. So even if you give online or through pre-authorized debit, what if we brought a toonie to place in the offering plate every single week as it came by, as a symbol of participation in the gospel? to declare your freedom from the lordship of money. There are parts of Africa, some of you have been to these places where worshipers have a dance party during the offering time. It's the high point. It's because they're celebrating Christ's victory over mammon. What if we did that? I'm not prepared this morning, but I think I want to go to the bank, get some loonies and toonies, and let's see what, what shows up next Sunday. I encourage us also to pray pray. Disciples living in the Roman Empire in the first century were not able to deal with injustice and immorality in the ways we can today. They didn't have the same channels. They had no access to political process because they lacked the finances to do so. But that did little to prevent them from impacting the empire with incredible force. So when Roman magistrates ordered Christians to worship the imperial spirit, they refused. said no, kneeling instead and offering prayers to God on the emperor's behalf. And that seemingly harmless act, seemingly harmless act, was far more revolutionary than outright rebellion would have been. Rebellion simply acknowledges the ultimate nature of the emperor's power and tries to grab hold of it. Prayer denies that by claiming and bowing before a higher power. Prayer challenges the spirit of the age itself. It says, no, Jesus is in charge. No one else. 
pray. Come to the table. Lastly, we celebrate the Ascended One by sharing in the meal that we call the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Do we see this as a transformative act? I hope we do. Every time we eat and drink together, we gather around this table, we declare that he who was crucified is alive and coming again and even now is seated at the right hand of God. He's on the throne. So invite us to a moment of silence, to listen for the still small voice of the Spirit. Which invitation, which invitations are you being drawn into? Is there something else that I didn't even offer this morning? Um, that could be a particular way you as an individual might want to do this. These are much, much of the ways that we do this as a community. So there's particularity, I realize, but there's also these shared practices uh, that we may be drawn into. So invite us for a brief moment to have... Uh, a time to listen for what you might be being drawn toward, and then I'll offer prayer and invite us to the table to celebrate these things together.